It is a blessing and a privilege to be together with you this evening and this weekend. I appreciate very much the invitation to come and share this time together. I'm humbled, always humbled by an opportunity to embrace the awesome responsibility of talking about God's Word and things pertaining to our service to God here in this life and the hope of living with God after this life. I'm uh, really thrilled to see you located out here. I was thinking earlier today, Carrie, about a conversation we had just really not that many years ago about the need to relocate, and, and Carrie and I was visiting about that, and was talking about the, the needed outlay of resources to make something like that happen, and he just talked about what an impossible thing that seemed like at the time, and it did seem that way, and yet here we are. And uh, it's a testament to what can happen when God's people set out to do things in a, in a good way and set reasonable and godly goals and work hard towards those goals. So I want to tell you, I really share in your joy for having a good location, a good place to meet here. Really happy for you. I want to warn you that I've been fighting allergies the last couple of weeks, so... If you get the sense that somebody set off a thermonuclear device up here, that just means I sneezed, so don't, don't worry about that. Uh, you know, the Bible says whatever you do, do you do it heartily, and I, I take that to heart when I sneeze, so don't be alarmed if, if I cut loose. I think I'll be okay. How much time you got left? I'm not talking about the sermon. I, I know how much time you got left for that. I'm talking about how much time do you have left here in this life on earth? I mean, I know some people that went to bed one night with big plans for the next day and the next week and the next month and the next year and woke up dead. When's your time going to come? Well, somebody told me one time, well, nobody thinks they're going to live forever, they just think they're not going to die today. And I guess that's true. You know, when you're really young, maybe in your teen years, we tend to have that feeling that some call 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You just kind of think that life's going to go on forever. Well, if I was to pull aside somebody here tonight, let's say that's 16 years old after services and just privately ask, so are you going to live forever here on earth? I don't guess anybody would say, well, sure I am. They would all say, yeah, eventually I'll die. That seems far away at that age. Seems kind of far away at the age of 49. But the truth of it is, we really don't know how far away it is. There's one thing we know about life and about death, and that is life is uncertain and death is certain. And the Bible teaches this a lot of different times in a lot of different very clear terms that I think would be good for us to give some attention to. I hope it will be a study this evening that will appropriately set a tone for things that we're going to talk about together this week. We're going to talk about things that pertain to the saint, the child of God, and we're going to talk about things that pertain to the sinner, the person who's outside the body of Christ, who who was once faithfully following and has fallen away. And any study along those lines suggests a sense of urgency that it matters 
whether or not we're a sinner or a saint or how we live our lives. And the whole premise that it matters is based on the premise that life is not going to keep on going on, but somewhere along the way, you're going to reach the end of your way. And when you do, you're going to have to answer for how you've lived during this life. And so it seems reasonable to me to commence our studies this week with a reminder that we need to number our days. We need to realize that our time here on earth is limited. In Psalms 90 and verse 12, the psalmist asks of God, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Now I want to ask you to notice that there are, there are two things that happen in the wording of this passage. Number one, a person learns to recognize their days are numbered, that time here on earth is limited. And then number two, their response to that information is they choose to live their lives with wisdom. They don't just look at the fact that, yeah, I'm going to die someday and then go back to doing what they were doing. But because they come to understand that their days are numbered, therefore they apply their hearts to wisdom. And so as we study things this week that pertain to how a sinner can become a child of God and how a person must live as a child of God, that's really amounts to a pursuit of applying our hearts to the wisdom of God's Word that would guide us how to live our lives considering the fact that our days are numbered. We only have so much time left. How much time is left, I don't know. But we only have so much time. Life is fragile. And life is brief. Let's think about what's said in Psalms 39 verses 4 and 5. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am, because thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Here we find another psalm where the psalmist writes of wanting to know, wanting to understand that my life is brief. And somebody might think, well, if he's saying, help me to know this, then he evidently already knows it because he knows to ask. Let's look at it this way. It goes back to that whole 16-year-old thing. You're going to die someday? Yeah, just not today. These two pastors are asking, help me to really know it. Help me to really believe it. Help me to, to really accept the fact that there will come a time when my last second has ticked off my clock and I'm done making decisions, good, bad, or indifferent. If I made a train wreck out of it or if I accepted the Lord's rescue and the the rebuilding that he offers for my spiritual life. Whatever I've done, there'll come a point in time where it's over and the curtain is drawn and I've got to answer. It's one thing to mentally know, yeah, that's going to happen. And it's something else to really embrace that truth in a way that reflects the way you live your daily life. Because it is very obvious that a lot of people live their lives in a way that they do not expect to meet God in judgment. And you might ask such a person, well, do you? Well, yeah, of course, we'll die someday. But you can't tell they really believe it by the way they live their lives. And I wonder if that could ever be said about me. Well, I'm sure it could be. And so I want to join that psalmist 
and saying, help me to know and understand the measure of my days and how frail I am. There are two different perspectives about life when it comes to a study of the human body. One thing, you can be amazed at how resilient and how strong the human body is. How the human body can bounce back from injury or sickness and the things within God's design for us kick into motion to go and, you know, while you're sleeping at night, your body is healing itself and and carrying nutrients to wounded parts and carrying away the trash and it's all going through the things that God has designed it to do in medical science as it uncovers more and more of this. It's just amazing how resilient the human body is. But then from another perspective, as resilient as the human body is, the human body and human life is extraordinarily frail. I imagine there are probably a couple of people here tonight tonight, that know enough about medical science that were they inclined to be violent in nature, they could tell you, well, here's one or two simple things you could do that would kill a person in seconds. I'm very confident there are some who understand that. And my point in saying that is not to applaud somebody's martial arts skills or whatever, but to, to make the point and to emphasize the point that life really is fragile. Life really is frail. And life really can end just like that. You're going down the highway at 70 miles an hour. Well, I guess if you're out in the country on the interstate, it's 75 now. Okay, some of you are driving 76, I know. But 75 for those of us that are legal. And you glance this way to do this, or you look that way to do that, or if, uh-uh, don't be texting, but somebody picks up and starts texting, and the next thing you know, you're swapping paint with a power pole. And in moments, you're gone. Even if you're a big old boy and as stout as a horse and all that other stuff, and, and healthy, you're gone. Life is fragile. And we need to embrace that reality. And in contrast with the fragility of our earthly life stands the unending eternity of God's existence. So compared to Him, we're just vanity. We're just a whiff of smoke. The, The fact that life is fragile and brief is certainly celebrated by this idea of a whiff of smoke in James 4 in verse 14 where he says, Whereas you know not, What shall be on the morrow? For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Recently, uh, some of us were in southeastern United States working. We were in Georgia. And it was a time of the year and the accommodating temperatures and all like that that you, you get something that we get sometimes during the winter where there'll just be a thin layer of fog, maybe a few feet off the ground. And, and that layer of fog might be that thin. And you get mesmerized by that because it's so neat. If it's coming off of a lake or a creek or something, it just looks cool. And you look at that and you look at the sun coming up on the horizon and you think, you know, it's not going to be long. And you look over here at these leaves that are turning purple and you look back over there at those leaves that are turning gold and you think how pretty it is. The next thing you know, that fog is gone. Vapor comes and vapor goes and it does so quickly. And that's the imagery that God... Asked us to call to our minds in trying to get us to understand just how brief life is. At the beginning, I said something about a conversation that Brother Kerry and I had probably, I don't know, eight or ten years ago. I don't know how long ago it was. But it seemed just like yesterday. 
I was talking to my older brother the other day about some stuff that we did back when we were little. And it seemed just like yesterday. And it hasn't really been that long. And when you look at the timeline of human history, it hasn't been that long. 45 years isn't that long. You know, back when we were little, it was 45 years ago. Our life is just a vapor. It's short, even when it seems long from our fleshly perspective. On the bigger scale of time and the infinite scale of eternity, it's nothing. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. Life is fragile and life is brief. In the book of Psalms, chapter 90, verse 9 and 10, he said, All our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their uh, boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Now when you look at that and you really think about what that passage is saying, I know it seems morbid. Because what this is saying is life is hard. You finish your years like a sigh. There's that sense of frustration and weariness. 70, maybe 80 years, whatever it is, that's kind of an average. The only thing you can boast is you've had to work hard and you've had a lot of sorrow and you've had a lot of problem and then you die. How morbid can you get? Okay, so that's morbid. Tell me it's not true. Oh, I know there are joys in life. I know there are things we enjoy. I get that. There's a lot of times we have a lot of fun. And I wouldn't want to minimize that at all. And we recognize the Bible talks about joyful things that come into our lives, especially as a result of our service to God. But there's also a lot of problems. And you're still going to die. Let me just tell you, even if all you ever do is have fun and never have any problems, which means, you know, among other things, you don't know anybody because, you know, if you don't have problems, somebody you know and love is going to have problems and that's going to break your heart. So you're going to have problems, but even if you didn't, someday your life is going to end. And to somebody looking on, it's going to seem like, boy, it just happened too soon. He says, it is soon cut off and we fly away. It may seem morbid, maybe even almost laughably so. But that doesn't change the fact that, I'm sorry, it's true. Life is fraught with peril and problems and life ends all too soon. What wakes us up to the reality In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2, he said, It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. He tells us something here that's incredible and difficult for us to accept, and that is that it's better to go where there's grief and there's mourning than it is to go to some sort of festive celebration. Look, I... I want to go to the festive celebration. I want to go to something that's going to cheer me up, perk me up, and make me feel good. Rather than to go to something that's all sad and all morbid. All right, let me translate that. I want to go to something that's going to help convince me that it's really not true that my life is short. And I can forget all about that stuff. Rather than to go to an event that's going to force me to face the fact that someday I'll die and I've got to get ready to leave this world. 
I mean, that's really what I'm saying when I'm saying I'd rather go celebrate than go to this house of mourning. Look, the point is that when we go to that house of mourning as opposed to a house of festive celebration is that we'll lay it to heart. You go attend that funeral to somebody that was just a little older than you or somebody that's a whole lot younger than you and you lay it to heart. You go to the hospital bed of somebody whose life is slipping away and you lay it to heart. It slaps you in the face and makes you realize, you know, this deal is real. It's one thing to walk into a cemetery and see a name chiseled on a stone. But it's something else to see it face to face with somebody that you know and you love. And that you don't want to lose. That death is real. And if death is real for them, that means it's real for me. And if life is brief and fragile for them, then that means it's brief and it's fragile for me. His aim is that we could use our problems and our sorrows in life to wake us up to this unfortunate reality of the brevity of life. God didn't plan for it to be this way. He made a world free of sickness and death, but when Satan convinced man to sin, that brought sin and death into the world and all the problems that followed it. And so God planned for that as well. He didn't make that happen per se, but he made provisions in this sense. He's provided for us the sacrifice of his son to offer a remedy for our sin and escape from death. So that though we must die, we someday can be raised to life. And God made those provisions expecting that we would stop and think about and embrace the brevity of life and then embrace the provisions He's made to prepare us for death. So let's think for a little while now about the fact that sorrow and troubles in life can help wake us up to the fact of the brevity of life. Something I really, honestly, I don't want to think about. I don't know how you feel about it. I just don't want to think about it. But facing in problems in life forces us to do that. So let's consider 1 Samuel chapter 20 now and verse 3. This is David speaking. David swore moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Now let's put this statement in context for just a moment. This comes at a time in uh, David's life when Solomon, or, uh, Solomon, Saul, his father-in-law, had turned against him. And Saul was bent on killing David. But Saul's son Jonathan was a friend of David. And so Jonathan was helping David out. And because of that, Saul was trying to keep certain information from Jonathan and he was calling Jonathan out on uh, showing love or favor towards David and a lot of things were going on, a lot of family drama, a lot of national drama because Saul was Israel's king and, and David had been a warrior, a faithful warrior for the king of Israel. So there was just a lot of problems attached to all this that was going on. And David's at a point where his daddy-in-law wants to kill him. I mean, we joke about that kind of stuff, but really? I mean, really, where your father-in-law throws a javelin at you and misses you and it sticks to the wall, he wants you dead that bad? That happened with Saul and David more than once. (coughs) 
You ever have somebody literally try that hard to kill you and live every day searching for you, wanting you dead? I mean, I've gotten some death looks from some people a few times, but I mean, to actually try to carry it out, if it ever happened, it was unbeknownst to me and they obviously didn't succeed. But David's living with that every day, not just from anybody, but from his father-in-law, a man that he loved and felt loyal to. He couldn't be a part of the king's household. He couldn't be a part of the king's army. He couldn't be a part of his own family. All he could do was live in the wild and run and hide. My point in talking about all this is to try to impress upon our minds what a sorrowful life that was for David at that window in his life. What a grief it would be to wake up every day knowing that a man you loved dearly wanted dearly for you to die. And that sorrow brought David face to face with the fact that we don't really want to think about. There's but one step between me and death. How close was David? Well, how close was the javelin to him? That far? Was that how close? Look. David was one step from death before Saul ever started chunking spears at him, okay? You may be in the pink of health today, but you're one step from death because life is fragile. Life is frail. And death could come at any moment. It's unpredictable. And it's a shame that David had to suffer, but you could see one good thing coming from his suffering is he's really grabbed hold of the realization there's just a step between me and death. Think about how Job suffered and the problems that he endured. In his life, he lost his children, he lost his possessions, he lost his health, he lost his wife's respect, he lost his honor in the community. And in Job 7 and verse 6, he said, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and spent without hope. We don't use weaver's shuttles and things like that in our modern textile industry. We've got automated machines that do all that. Several years ago in India, I had an opportunity to watch a weaver's shuttle. They had a hair cut from a goat. I thought it was wool. Somebody told me off of a goat it's not called wool, whatever it was. I'm going to call it wool because I'm talking now and I can do that. So they had wool from a goat. And they had, that, and they had somebody running that through the spindle making the long uh, strands of material from that. And then they had somebody else with that hand loom business throwing that stuff back. And there's a long rod they'd throw back and forth. And they was basically weaving that together making blankets. And once they, you know, you could look at it and you could study the pieces of machinery and see how it all worked. And once they started working at just hand speed, it immediately become a blur, just like that. You couldn't see the parts. It was all moving so fast. This wasn't automated. This was hand done, but it was all moving so fast you couldn't see it. That's the mental image. You look at that, you imagine that deal where somebody's hand weaving all that stuff and it's all happening so fast that it's just a blur, literally a blur. Your eyes can't bring it into focus. That's what Job saw when he saw his life. It's like a weaver's shuttle. He saw a distasteful element to that, that he spoke in his frustration. He said, my days are spent without hope. That's where he got a little exaggerated. In a sorrowful state of mind, he lost all hope. And I want to tell you, don't ever get to a point where you think there's no hope. We're not done talking about that, okay? 
In Job 7 and verse 7, he said, Oh, remember that my life is wind. Mine eye shall no more see good. Again, he sees the brevity of life and he's overwhelmed with this hopelessness. How fast is the wind? Well, sometimes it gets pretty fast out in our country, doesn't it? You can't hardly catch up with it, can you? Can't get away from it. That's how fast life is. In Job 9 and 25, he said, My days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. My day is, it's faster than the mail system. Now, don't start making cracks about the mailman. I know we think the mail is slow, but I'm just going to stand up and represent, okay? And I don't work for the postal system, okay? Let me just tell you, the other day, I took a, a little envelope down to the post office in New Deal, Texas, and I gave them a couple of dollars, and four days later, I got an electronic message from Atlanta, Georgia, that said it made it. That's fast. I've driven that highway before, and I'll tell you, that's quick. When you consider that they had to put that in with everybody else's mail and take it somewhere and sort it out and send it somewhere else to resort it and put it on the right truck and on and on and on, that's fast. And you think about in an ancient day where they were probably sending the post by horseback. Job is trying to think of something in life that's fast that he could compare the brevity of life and the idea of a horse being able to take a message from here to way over yonder in a relatively short period of time. He says, that's the brevity of life. But again, he says, I see no good. There's a sense of hopelessness in what he says. In the next verse, Job 9 and 26, he says, They're passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hastens to the prey. The fast ships with their sails filled with wind, that swift eagle who's flying so fast and swooping down faster than a rabbit can run to catch his prey. It's amazing. He says that's how fast life is. I want to tell you something. This wasn't as real to Job when he was riding high before he lost all of his possessions and before all those tragedies had come upon his family. Oh, I know that Job believed he would die. Job knew that life would come to an end. I don't doubt that at all. But now it's real. And we need it to be that real with us. Job put it like this in Job 14, the first two verses. He said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Life is short and life is troubled. You think that's not right? You think that's morbid? Hey, ask Job. He had a lot of good years. He had a lot of good times. He had a lot of good blessings. But he also had problems and he also had to face death. Life is short and uncertain. Think about Jacob, the old patriarch in Genesis 47 and verse 9. It's sort of a fascinating scene that unfolds before us where Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been and have not attained to the days of the years of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. <coughs> what precipitated this little statement from uh, Jacob here <coughs> is Joseph had asked him his age. Now, get the setting again. Because a lot of these really come alive when we put them in their setting. Jacob is a shepherd. And at this point, I think he's 130 years, didn't he say? He's an old, old man. Okay? He comes down from the land of Canaan to live in the land of Egypt. And he's presented before Pharaoh. Now, picture this grizzled old shepherd leaning on his staff. Weather-worn. He's worked out in the weather all his life. 
for 130 years, the dude's going to look beaten and blown, okay? And I picture this old gray guy just leaning on his staff, looking all, you know, hollow-eyed and wind-weathered, worn and all that, sunburnt and everything else. And here's pampered Pharaoh on his throne. Dude, how old are you? Jacob looked across the years at those years he spent with Laban, his crooked daddy-in-law. The time that he had to flee from Esau, his brother, who wanted him dead. That same time that he was separated from his mom and dad. The fear of returning back to his homeland and seeing Esau and hoping that Esau would forgive him. They had some bad blood between them. The times that the family did well and the times that the family broke his heart. The time that he thought his favored child Joseph was dead. Mistakenly so, but he believed that he was dead. The different sorrows that he endured. And I just picture this weathered old guy getting a distant look as he remembers all those times and says, few and evil have the days, the years of my life been. That doesn't mean there wasn't anything to be happy about. He married the love of his life. Remember that gal he worked seven years for? Yeah, I know he got her sister too and he didn't really want that, but he married the love of his life. He had a lot of children. The Lord prospered his hand. He had a lot of good things happen. But just understand that as he surveyed the sorrows that littered the landscape of his 130 years, he saw the brevity and the uncertainty of life. Which screams to me and screams to you. It doesn't matter if we have a great family. It doesn't matter if we're successful in business. It doesn't matter if a lot of good things have happened to us in this one sense. We still got to get ready for the end of our life. I don't mean to say those things aren't important, but from the standpoint of the brevity of life, those things don't matter. We're still just here for a short time. <clears throat> Proverbs 14 and verse 32. Here's what it means to us. The wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. After all this morbidity of we're going to die, you suffer a lot in life, and then you're going to die. After all that, we need a breath of fresh air. We need a cool drink of water. So here we go. Remember those times that Job was saying, yeah, life's short, and then, you know, my years are wasted without hope, and all those statements about being so hopeless? That's the side of the equation where Job was mistaken. Because it wasn't totally hopeless. I'm sure it seemed hopeless in his diseased, sorrowful state. But in the grander picture of life, it wasn't hopeless. This passage says, the righteous has hope in death. We're sitting here talking about the certainty of death, and we're all going to die, and death, die, die, death, die, get sick and die, grow old and die. That's all so morbid, <laughs> and it sounds hopeless. But he said, for the righteous, death isn't hopeless. There is hope even in the awful face of all this morbid talk about death, there's hope. What is that hope? 
Well, you get right. And that's what matters. You get right. And that means you've got something to live for. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, come to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. It's kind of a curious way the Hebrews expressed some of their things in parallelisms. They said things twice in parallel ways. You shall die and not live. We don't say stuff that way. So it sounds kind of curious to us. You're going to die and not live. That's like hitting the nail on the head twice to make sure you drive it all the way to the end. So what do you do? You set your house in order. So your death will not be a hopeless affair. In the book of John chapter 9 and verse 4, Christ put it like this. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. (laughs) As Christ uh, anticipated the end of his own life, he said, I've got to work while I've got opportunity because everybody's reaching a point where you lose your last opportunity to do anything good. And so when we think about the brevity and the uncertainty of life, our response is to apply our hearts to wisdom, to do something about it. Don't just walk away with your head hanging down saying, well, I guess we're all going to die. Do something about it. Get right with God. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1, he said, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. You start serving God now. You get right with God now while you've got a chance. Because a time will come that it may be off your mind. You may be out of the notion. You may no longer be interested. So you start now building a godly habit now of serving God now. And somebody says, well, that says start in the days of your youth. It's too late for me. I'm going to tell you something. You're younger today than you will be tomorrow. You're not as old as you're going to be someday. So wherever you're at on the broad scale of life, remember your Creator. Start now. The night is coming when you won't get a chance and you'll wish you could start serving God. But your last chance to do that will have gone. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 4, he said, To him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You think about a, a dead, a lion, you, you think about a, the image of power, the king of beasts, the king of the jungle, or the Serengeti, or wherever you want to put him. That's a powerful beast. I remember a year or two ago, we visited the Oklahoma City Zoo, and they have an exhibit there with the lions, and they've got the thick plexiglass wall that goes up so high, and then it's open air over the top of that, and you can see the lions right on the other side. On <clears throat> this particular day, the lions had come up close. And we're standing there watching the male of the pride, and then there's a few females laying around there. And directly, one of those lions roared, was standing back just a little bit from the glass, and one of those lions roared. I'm not exaggerating. I felt my hair move. (laughs) Because the breeze that his roar created (laughs) blowing over that glass wall. Powerful, you know, it was... Just the, 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 the roar of his voice was withering. Power. Not when he's dead. The little dog yapping at your feet. 
has more power than that lion does when the lion's dead. Here's the point. Death is more than an equalizer. Death flips the scales the other direction. You might feel great and powerful in your own estimation, but if you're not a child of God, death will show how weak and powerless you are. And you might not feel like much pumpkin, but as long as you have life, you have opportunity to make the right decision to serve God. And as long as you have that opportunity, there's hope. Because for the righteous, there's hope in death. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, we learn next that once we get right, we must stay right. He said, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. He said, walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. Think about that walking circumspect. A circumspect is a cool word. That means look in a circle. In athletic competition, a lot of times in a, in a team sport, they'll, they'll, they'll coach the players. You play with your head on a swivel. It means always be looking around, circumspect, looking, walking in a circle. Well, when you walk circumspectly, you're walking uprightly. And that upright walk is a walk where you're looking in a circle. You're looking all around. You always are watching to do the right thing. <coughs> Doing what? Redeeming the time. The word that's translated redeem there carries the idea of going and buying something back. It's like going to a pawn shop to, to hawk some of your possessions. I've never done this before, but I understand it works something like this. I might take some valued possession that I have and go to the pawn shop and they'll give me so much money for it. And if I can go back within a certain amount of time before it sells, I can buy that thing back at an inflated price. So let's say I take a gizmo that I've got and I go to the pawn shop and he gives me 20 bucks for it. And then next week I go back with $25 and then I can redeem it. You see, I can buy it back paying whatever the interest is on that purchase. That's what it means to redeem something. So how do we live our lives? We live our lives in such a way that we are redeeming the time. I'm constantly treating my time as something that I've already lost. And I've got to go buy it back. I don't want to waste time doing ungodly things. I want to use my time wisely. I want to redeem the time. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 17, he said, If you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's works, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. That same thing as redeeming the time. We're living with our head on a swivel. We're passing our time in fear. We're living with a realization that life is brief and uncertain. And my end is sure. It's just a matter of when. I don't know when. So what do you need to do to die? Do you need to become a Christian? Have you once been a Christian, but you've fallen away from the Lord? Do you need to return to the chief shepherd and bishop of your soul and resume a faithful life of service to him? What kind of change needs to happen in your life? Maybe you're a faithful child of God and you just need to crank it up another notch to be a better person. There was a time in Israel when a little old lady was really concerned about the people of Israel. 
In 2 Samuel 14 and verse 14, she pleaded, We must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. <coughs> it's kind of neat. When you pour water on the sand and you watch how that water soaks into the sand, and it's gone. You can't get it back. That chance you had to obey the gospel and begin serving the Lord faithfully, but you said, not now. That's water spilt on the sand. You can't get that moment back. I'm going to tell you on judgment day, you'll want it back. But there's no retrieving it. That chance you had to return to the Lord after walking away from Him, and you said, not yet. Soon, but not yet. That's water spilt on the ground. On judgment day, you'll crave to retain that moment, but you can't. When it's gone, it's gone. That chance, Christian, that you could have studied more, been more zealous, done more good works, told your wife or your husband that you loved them, done something good for your children, done something to correct them, to guide them, to help your neighbor, to bless your brother or sister in the church, to do the right thing. That opportunity that you let pass is gone. The moment is gone and you can't get it back. Our lives is truly like water spilt on the sand. When the moments are gone, they're gone forever. Don't let those moments be gone wasted in the pursuit of sinful things. Oh Lord, teach us to number our days. I hope you're numbering your days right now. I hope you're thinking of the brevity and the uncertainty of life and the need for you to be right with God. If we can assist you tonight in getting right with God, we'd love to do so. If you're not a Christian, you want to become a Christian, we want to help you in that. If you don't know how to become a Christian, we want to help you. There are brethren here that can open the Scriptures and show you what to do. Any of us would be glad to study with you. If you are a Christian but you've strayed from the Lord and you need help getting back and getting right, we'd love to help you in that way. If we can help you in either way, we invite you to come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.